And his incomparably great power for us is for in those who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. How many believe that's some great power? Amen. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Because the Son of God became the Son of Man, the Son of Men now can become sons and daughters of God. Let me just say it a little bit better and add the genders in there. The Son of God became the Son of Man, became like us, so that the sons and daughters of men might become the sons and daughters of God. Do you get it? The eternal Son of God always had a throne, but Jesus never had a throne. So how did Jesus get a throne? The eternal Son of God took on flesh, became Jesus. The unique expression of Jesus is God in humanity. Jesus as a human being never existed until he was virgin born of Mary through the line of David. But the eternal God, the Son, existed in eternity and created mankind in his image. The eternal Son of God took on flesh like we would put on a space suit to go to the moon. The Son of God put on an earth suit to come and be with us. Now, there were not two sons of God's or divisions of his nature. There was not a Son of God that's divine and then Jesus who was a man, and two of them shared uh, kind of a same mind. No, that's not what happened. What it was was the mind of the Son of God because the Word had a mind. The Father has a a mind, the Son has a mind, the Holy Spirit has a mind. The mind of the Son, what we would call the solical part of the Word of God, the eternal Logos, encompassed the body of Jesus. So there was one Son consciousness in the body of man. And we call that, what we call that is the hypostatic union, the interminglement of the eternal divine Son of God coming into flesh and occupying a body. That hypostatic union was 100% divine from eternity, the Son of God, and 100% man. Jesus then lived as a man with his divine privileges laid aside so that he would live just like us. So he was called the second Adam. He did not have any other privileges than what you or I would have. That's why he was, when he was baptized in water, the Holy Spirit came and baptized him. And he said, I never do anything anything unless I see the Father doing it. He did not come as a superman. He came as a man. Is everybody tracking with me? And then that's why he lived a sinless life as a man, and that was significant. Where Adam had failed, Jesus had succeeded. And then he died on the cross for our sins as a perfect man. So once again, the Son of God became flesh so that he could die as a perfect man for our sins. At his resurrection is where he's given all rule, authority, power, power, and dominion. Now, some people ask the question, they say, if he was the eternal God, the Son of God, equal with the Father and the Spirit, why does he get things at the resurrection? Doesn't God already have power? Didn't the Word already have authority? Well, the reason why he gets it at the resurrection is on behalf of man. Man had been given power. Man had been given authority and dominion on the earth, and it was man that lost it. Hence the reason of the incarnation, Jesus comes in the flesh. And then when he raised from the dead, why didn't he just raise as the Spirit, the Son of God, and just go back to being the Son of God? Why did he keep the flesh of Jesus and stay in 
communion with humanity because humanity is cursed with death because of sin. I've lost so many of you guys, but this is called theology. That is why he kept the flesh because our flesh is cursed to die. So in his resurrection, he's given the everlasting blueprint, the DNA for the new humanity that will live forever upon the new heavens and the new earth. Think about it like this. You have two deaths, one of your spirit and one of your body. If you're not born again of your spirit, your body will die and you will suffer eternally in hell. But if you are born again because of Jesus in your spirit, you're given a resurrected body. Where does that come from? Where does the DNA come from? Where does the power come from, the resurrected body of Jesus Christ? So he is given it as a man. So the God-man now has a throne. It is a unique throne from the one that he had possessed before he had ever created the world. You have to understand the Father never interacted with us ever. Who is it that created us in his image in the garden? The pre-incarnate Christ, what we call the Word, the Son of God. Who was the one that met with Moses, talked to him face to face? Who's the one that came and met with Abraham in Genesis 18? The Word. Is everybody listening to me? Some of y'all don't believe me. Can I go to the Bible? We're going to be here for a while because this is just the intro to the intro, okay? But I need you guys to track with me right here because some of you are not catching this is good theology. This is our God. This is, this is who we worship when we say we worship the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and that we are saved by Jesus. Jesus has a unique role in the Trinity, and we need to understand it. And, of course, my scripture is locked up here, but I'll quote it to you. How about that? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Does everybody get that? So that teaches us that in the beginning, the Word was already there, and He was with God. That means He's not the God He's facing. He is a God, but He's not the God He's facing. There's not two gods now, though, because in the next part it says, and the Word was God. That means the same way that He faced a God, He is God in that same nature. We realize down in verse 18, who is the God in the same nature that he is facing? It is the Father. And we'll get to this in just a moment. It says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So when we go back to John 1.1, 1, 1, and we're just having a little internet trouble today, so please be patient, we can easily say it like this. In the beginning was the Word, the pre-incarnate Christ, and the Word was with the Father who is God, and the Word himself was God like the Father. That's the interpretation. That's how we understand three in one. He was with God, the Father, in the beginning. Through him, through Jesus, or rather the pre-incarnate Christ, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. In the Word, in the Son of God was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, one more reference into this passage. We'll go to verse 14. And it says, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have beheld his glory. And so I'm, I'm stuck here, but uh, that's what 114 says. Pull out your paper Bible for me and get it as I pull out my phone Bible. Let's see if this will work. And then you guys will understand Jesus. Somebody say Jesus. Why is it so complicated, Pastor? It's really not. If we just pay attention and put our mind to the things of Christ, we will understand it. Lord, help this computer work before I have to rebuke the devils out of it. Have you ever heard the joke? Does anybody know the story about the, the demons getting cast out of the pigs in the Bible? And where'd they all go? They went, the demons went into the pigs, right? And then, the, and then the pigs died. And where'd the demons go after that? The internet, computers. That's where they went. 
Got to cast them out. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Rewind. Let me give everybody's attention here. The father, son, and the Holy Spirit have always existed. They are our one God. This is our God. Three persons and one divine being. They equally share it together. They are not three parts. They are not three pieces of a pie. They are not three gods. There is one God and three persons. Jesus came into the flesh for us. That's appropriate to say. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Still appropriate. But if you want to be exact, as the Bible gives us the exact terminology, before Jesus was the Word. Does everybody get that? You shall call his name Jesus when he comes through that womb. But what was he called before the womb? The Word, the Son of God. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only what? Son. And his Son became Jesus. But then here's where people get confused. If the Son, who is God, becomes man, they say that the Son of God stops being God. Now just God became a man, like Zeus becoming a man, like some stories you've heard before. But that is not what we believe. He is both God and man. But yet when he walks the earth, he limits himself to be a man. Why is that important? Because that's the story of redemption. So a lot of you, when you tell the story of redemption, you get it wrong. You either just consider Jesus a man created and born December 25th, which obviously isn't the right day for his birth anyway, but you think there was just a man that was born and that became our Savior. That is not true. He is the incarnation of the God that we have always worshipped. He's the one who created us. And then there's others of you who just think God took on flesh like a Zeus taking on a body, and then he did all of these powerful things, and then that's how he did That's not true either. The hypostatic union teaches us that God became man, one in the same person, God and man. Can I hear an amen? Now, why is, thank you. Now, why is that important? Because when he was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ is given all power now as a man, as the second Adam, which we had lost, and now his name, the name of Jesus, not the Son, not the Logos, not Yahweh, not Old Testament names of Elohim, not Allah. There's now a name given to us that is the name above every name. And what's that name? Jesus, okay? And his name is above every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. So when the age to come comes, you're going to see the God-man. He will have a body pierced that you could see the nail prints on his hands, the scar on his side. You will be able to touch him. The disciples ate with him. Are you listening? You will have that. But then here's the thing. As he is, the Bible says, you will be. You will be a spitting image of him, not just spiritually on the inside in my heart. I got Jesus right here in my heart. No, you will have Jesus on the outside with your body. Your body will have the DNA of his body. And that's what's important about this is that you know the church, which we're about ready to read, verse 22, is not a game. This is the beginning stages of the kingdom to come. When Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He is talking about us being born again first from heaven, having spiritual rebirth, and then one day having a physical rebirth, new bodies to rule and reign with them. So that is another misunderstanding that Paul is correcting here. We are not meant to be disembodied spirits in heaven. That is a temporary 
temporary place until the judgment to come, okay? And that's why it's important that you recognize Jesus still has his body. Because if Jesus does not have his body, you cannot rule and reign with him in his, with, with his like body, in his likeness. And so when you think of going to heaven, a lot of people think, I'm going to go up there and fish and do all that. No, you're not doing any of that. What heaven is, is a timeless place. See, right now we are in matter, space, and time. Heaven is outside of matter, space, and time. It is a timeless place around his throne where it's all about worship. You will be there for the next thousand years, a hundred years. Those who have died have been there for many thousands of years like the early church. It doesn't matter how long you will be there. It will all feel the same. And the next moment, what we would call a moment in time, is you entering back into this reality, riding horses with him to judge the world and rule and reign. So there is no activity up there except around his throne, being mesmerized by his glory in a timeless moment. But then people think that's what eternity is like. That is not what eternity is like. You enter into matter, space, and time. You were born to have a body. You were created with Adam and, like Adam and Eve to have a body. It will not be surreal. It will not be dreamlike. You will come with a glorified body, and as we saw a taste of this Jesus after the resurrection, who could walk through walls, appear and disappear, but yet still eat and function, you will then be here upon the earth with him in real time for the rest of eternity. God never does away with matter, space, and time. Heaven is where the Father's throne was. It comes now to earth, and matter, space, and time go on for infinity. Are you, are you guys tracking with me? Your resurrected body is like his resurrected body. We rule and reign over the earth for a thousand years. Humanity continues on, but we are to them like Thor is in the movies. We are superhumans to them. We rule over them, and we guide the paths of humanity, showing that God wins in the end. Then the final judgment comes, and then only the sons and daughters of God live with him for eternity. That's how the book ends. Let's read 22 together. One, two, three. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Does that help you understand some things now? The God-man is over the church. He is in heaven waiting to come down and judge the world. He is right now building this organization which is made of organisms. The organization of the church is of living organisms, people. The most important group of people on the planet to Jesus right now is a church. It's his body, verse 23, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Can I give you a definition of the church now? As we talk about Jesus being the head of the church, the church is Jesus' called out ones. In the Greek, ekklesia, the called out ones. Both the universal and local gathering of disciples encompassing all generations and cultures. We understand that every nation, tribe, and language is represented in the church. It doesn't matter if you're white, black, Latino, Asian, any of that. Do you? It doesn't matter what any culture you are. We are of one race, the human race, and it doesn't matter what man has done. It only matters what the God man has done. And it doesn't matter what humanity has done. It matters what Christ is doing in humanity, for that is his kingdom. And this church is a local church, and the universal church is throughout our city, throughout our nation, and the world. John Ankerberg just posted on his page that he preached at the fastest-growing church in the world of 180,000 in Hyderabad, India. And he preached to 2,000 of their leaders. We're going to give India a run for their money. Amen. When we look at how the church works, there's a special way that Jesus set it up, and it should be special to us. The church pretty much can be looked at in the beginning of the book of Acts, and you can see how it worked. 
the disciples gathered together and believed that he was with them because he had told them, where there's two or three, I'm there with you. There is the church. Point to where the church is right now. Two or three, here we are. There in that small group of believers, they began to do the things he commanded, baptisms and communion. Oftentimes we think that only clergy can do those things, but that is not a distinction in the Bible. You can baptize a fellow believer and you can take communion at home. Certainly you can do it with our church as we did today, and you can celebrate that with the leaders that are in the church, but it is not restricted to leaders. So just think about this. A few of the disciples are in a city. There's nobody else there. They win somebody to the Lord. What are they going to do? Let's baptize them. Let's take communion. Let's keep living for Jesus. He's with us. Amen. The next thing that we notice that marks the church is that true doctrine is preached. That's why we know that the Roman Catholic Church is not a true church. He can dress up like mother and have us call him father and put on a dunce hat and act like he's infallible, but that is not the truth. And I don't mean that to be rude. That is a false teaching. And so you may think to yourself, everybody look up at me, get a good look at this pastor right here. You may see me casually dressed, and you may think that I don't take the church as serious as the Pope does, but I want you to get this without being offended. If I offend your mind, let at least open your heart today, but I'm not intending to do that. Listen to me. If the Pope does not repent of idolatry, he will go to hell and I will reign with Christ. I take the church much more serious than him. Why? Because I take doctrine more serious than him. And I have Catholic family. I understand what they believe. It's not biblical. Show me that in the Bible. They say, well, Peter, he's called the rock. And we'll learn this later on. Peter, the rock, says we're all rocks serving the one living rock, Jesus Christ. And we're all built up together. He teaches us that. Matter of fact, I'll show that to you now because you got excited. Let me show you what Peter said. 1 Peter chapter 2, 4 through onward, he says, you come to him, the living stone. There's only one living stone. So what was the significance of Peter there when he was called the rock? Peter was the first disciple to become a, a stone with the living stone. And that's why God honored him and let him preach the first message after the day of Pentecost. But look at what he says. There's only one true living stone, capital S, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. That is Christ, the head of the church. But look at what it says here. You also, like living stones, small stones, are being built into a spiritual house to a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Where are the living stones? Point to them, please. Not the rolling stones, but the living stones. Where is the spiritual house of God? Point to it, please. This is us, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and point to the holy priesthood. You and I are a holy priesthood unto Jesus, and we are offering our spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Now, if you could take a time machine and go back to the time of the early church, you would see nothing that you would see in an Orthodox or Roman Catholic church or a Lutheran church or any of those things. As a matter of fact, if you wrote down 10 attributes of the common high, what we call high churches, very religious, and you wrote down 10 attributes of what you see in this church today, and you went back and studied the book of Acts for yourself, you would see this church hits almost every single one of them. Let me give you an example. 
When you go to the early church, you will recognize they were all equal. No one had to spoon feed them communion. Which does that sound like? This church where you can take communion on your own or the high churches where you have to be handed to it by a priest? In the early church, they were not recognized by their dress. As a matter of fact, the Jewish leaders made fun of the disciples and said, they're not educated like us. They're not dressing like us, but we know one attribute about them. They're like Jesus. They've been around him. And that's why they called us Christians, literally mean little Christ, not gods like little gods, but like how I would say to my son, there's a little Joe. Juniors, we were like Jesus. You would then begin to see that they worshiped, they sang songs, they taught the word. That was church. It wasn't incense. It wasn't bells and smells. It wasn't statues of the other saints. That would have been silly for Paul to pray to Peter. They understood that there was one meteor between man and God, and that was the God, man, Jesus Christ. They understood there was only one way, truth, and life, and that was Jesus, and no one can get to the Father but by him. Is this making sense to anybody? We're not here to be rude or disrespectful, but we preach sound doctrine. The elders and deacons are present to lead and organize the church, and they enforce the church's discipline, making sure that people don't steal, lie, and do things sexually immoral as we've had all throughout church history. So, yes, it's happened in high organized churches, but it's also happened with televangelists and churches and storefronts. But that's never an excuse to lay the banner down. We raise the banner of Jesus Christ high. Who are elders and deacons? They're the ones in charge of the church. You may have said, well, what about, you may have heard it said, well, pastors and all of these things. Pastors are the gifts that we'll get to next, but elders and deacons are the two offices. That's the only thing you see being raised up. As a matter of fact, in Peter's letter in chapter 5, he says, I as an elder command the other elders to shepherd the people. So think of it like this. There's managers, but they're gifted to do certain things on your job. Maybe your manager is gifted at sales, so they're in charge of sales. There's managers that are gifted at organization, so they schedule your job, uh, schedule, make the schedules for everybody. Elders can be pastors, apostles, pastor, uh, teachers, uh, evangelists, and uh, prophets. But what they are in position are elders. What they are then next is deacons. And deacons literally just mean waiters. If you were in the Greek culture at the time of the Bible, you would go to a restaurant and you would say, where are the deaconos? The deaconos, rather. Where are the, the deacons? Where are the waiters? The deacons are the servants of the elders helping the church grow. And they do as, as best as they can with the elders to govern the church. And so imagine once again these disciples. They start making new disciples. Who's going to organize us? Because most of the time their apostles had to go to other cities. So as Paul is sending them a letter in Ephesus, he's not in Ephesus anymore. So what do they do? They have to raise up their elders and deacons. And so they pray for them and appoint them as leaders. But they are never greater than them. They're just one among many, but given the gift of responsibility to lead the people. And then God anoints them. Everybody say anoint. You could think of the appointment as the offices, elder and deacon. And you could think of the anointing as the spiritual gifts and the fivefold ministry gifts. It's what do they do? What do the leaders do in the church? Well, they're apostles, they start new churches, they're prophets, they speak on behalf of God, they evangelize, win new souls, and raise up soul winners, and they pastor and shepherd God's people, and they teach the body of Christ. How do they do it? Equipped by the Holy Spirit, by the baptism of that, that power that comes, and they have 12 spiritual gifts. Now you may say, Pastor, I'm not an elder or deacon, can I have those gifts? Yes, you can, because our God's a good God. But he doesn't give it according to anything other than how he wills. So if he wills you to be an evangelist, he'll give you that gift. If he wills you to 
prophesy, he'll give that to you. But the Bible says there's nothing wrong in eagerly desiring them. Pray and seek after them, and God will deposit in you what he needs you to have. And and sometimes you'll have them for seasons. Maybe God will bless you in this one season to have a ministry gift or another season to have a spiritual gift. And that is the body of Christ and how it functions. And then what do they do now? These two or three gathered together who are teaching the sound doctrine of the Lord, taking communion and baptizing, raising up their elders and deacons in the spiritual gifts and ministry gifts. Now they go preach the gospel to all the world and make new disciples. They reach one to teach one to reach one. They touch heaven to change earth. You decide that I join this church by a free decision. God can't force you to do this, but when you freely join, you are now commanded to go and bring others into the church of Jesus Christ. And this is where I have to get sassy. Somebody say, make it plain. The church doesn't need you, but you need the church. I want everybody to get this. The church does not need me, but I need the church. So often the church in the 21st century has been brought together with capitalism and consumerism. And the idea is, well, I don't really like your church. I'm looking for a church that has this kind of a children's ministry, this kind of a worship service, this kind of music with a little bit of uh, lemon on the side, please, and thank you very much. And if I don't like it, I'm just going to go down to the next one and the next one and the next one. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says we are joined together with the local body of believers that he calls us to join to. That we should take serious our participation in the place that he calls the church. Like I said, there's localized churches and then there's the universal church. If you're here today, I take this serious that you are in the local church. God has called me to be an elder in this local church. And oftentimes people say to me, well, pastor, it's real easy for you to want to promote the church because the church is all about you. I want to tell you what I think uh, about that statement. It's all about me. And sometimes you'll even hear this. Why go to Pastor Joe's church? Why go to Pastor Choco's church? Why go to Berry Hill's church? Why go to Winston's church? Let me ask you a question. When you look at Bill Murray crying over the Cubs winning the World Series, is it anybody's one team that he's crying over or is it the collection of the players? And yet it's so meaningful for him, but yet so meaningless in real life. But it's meaningful. Why? He found an attachment to a group of people. They trade their players all the time, but he wears the Cubs hat with honor. He loves Wrigley Field no matter what players are there as long as they're Cubs. Are you tracking with me? And so somehow that makes sense in this world that we call sports. But when we come here to the church, you think this is Joe's church. Well, let me ask you a question. There are 168 hours of the week. How many hours did you sit and watch me? One. We have 13 life groups, people. I want every life group leader to stand up in this place and meet the players of the church. Single moms life groups. Young adult life groups. Now, if you attend these life groups, I want you to stand up with them. If you attend one of the life groups at Metro Praise, go ahead and stand up. Are you a spectator or are you a player? What are you doing at that life group? How many are spectators? I hope most of you are players. Grab a seat. Thank you. You see, nobody thinks it's strange to point to this man and say, look at how much he loves his community. Look at how much he loves his team. But then they point to me and say, well, this is Joe's church. Joe just wants to be Willy Wonka with a bunch of Oompa Loompas. And I say, the devil's a liar. I want you to join the team. I want you to join the community. I want you to find one of those 13 life groups and pour your hours into them. Just last week, our single mom's ministry went out on the street before they had their life group and won six people to the Lord. See, that's a home run. That's not one player. That's a team effort. 
the teenagers winning their city. They went to five schools for see you at the pole and prayed for their schools. Let's give it up for them. There's three teen life groups meeting this week. There's a family life group. There's a marriage life group every month. You've heard them all. We didn't plan the message to fall on the first time uh, of the quarter, the first Sunday of the quarter, but you've seen them literally all today. See, when we look at the church, we better take it serious because it's God looking at us. We're not spectators. We're players. And so, yes, I understand there's a place for sports. Don't get me wrong. I get it. I almost wore my Cubs shirt today, and I hope they win again the championships, but uh, the World Series. But that's not how the world looks at us. They look at us like we're fools. Like, because I spoke to you for an hour that today, now, somehow, this is my church. They have no idea how many hours people give to our children's ministry on Wednesdays, how many hours people are giving to the youth services and to the evangelism, how many hours are given in counseling. This is a team. This is a body. And so we ought to take it serious. And I take my role here for an hour very serious. I have 50 verses today. I haven't even started the message. This is the beginning of the message right now. I take this serious. And so here's what I want to say on behalf of other pastors, the good ones. If you've been hurt in a bad church, whether it's by Father Tom or Bishop so-and-so, we are sorry because that is not the body of Christ where sin compromise, heresy, manipulation is, it may call itself a church, but it's not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is the bride of Christ, and it's holy, and it's blameless. And when it sins or makes mistakes, the body of Christ is forgiven. The body of Christ repents and says, forgive us. People say, what about slavery in America? Every church that supported that is in hell right now if they didn't repent. Can I make it any plainer than that? Do you understand? Every place that has taught you not to love your neighbor, has manipulated, has stolen, or taught you a false doctrine, God have mercy on their soul on Judgment Day. But I will not use them as my excuse. Do not use those who have failed as your excuse to fail. You can make a difference or you can make excuses. You can't do both at the same time. I have decided I will represent the church in this generation. How many are with me? Now let me give you the message. Look at your neighbor and say, here comes the sermon. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 and onward, we see how serious the church should be taken. The author of Hebrews says, let us hold on swervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Yeah, let's go. Don't worship or pray to the mother of Guadalupe. Yeah, let's go. Don't worship man in their books and believe it's your best life now if they're teaching you heresy. Yeah, let's go. Don't run from accountability to the consumer church down the road that will let you just be an usher or whatever and not care about your soul because you can go to hell with a choir robe on. You can go to hell with an usher button on. Yeah. Spur us on. You spur me on. You encourage me. Sometimes older people come here and say, oh, there's not enough older people. Well, be an older person who loves Jesus and start a classic older people life group. We're the classics. Okay, great. Start one. But there's no excuse. We'll make a difference instead. Let us consider how we may spur each other on to love and good deeds. Amen. 
not getting, giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And text two people right now that aren't at church and should be here and say, I encourage you to come next week. Come on, do it right now. And text two people right now. Facebook them, text them, tweet them, who you know need to be at this church. Encourage them to come. Encourage them right now. The day is approaching. Jesus is coming back. The resurrected Lord is fixing to start his kingdom. They may not be ready. I'm not saying if they miss church today, they're going to hell. But I'm just saying they may not be ready. We should not be in the habit of missing church. God used the church to save my family. Saved my mother as a single mom who came from a broken marriage. Saved my dad who was raised in Catholicism as an altar boy. And it was the church that taught me as a child about a God who cared about us, even if we were in lion's dens and fiery furnaces. He would never leave us nor forsake us. And it was the church that taught my mom how to lead her son, me as a backslider, back to him at 18 years old at her kitchen table. She didn't have to call up a priest or a pastor. She was a priest. She was my pastor. She shepherded my soul and brought me back to Jesus. And it was the church, people like you, who wrote me letters before there was Facebook out of their prayer times saying, Joe, this is what God said. God said this and this, and I want to encourage you. And those letters changed my life. They, they impacted me deeply. I remember Donald, a crippled man that lived with his wife who was disabled in a nursing home, found me at an all-night prayer meeting because I had nowhere else to go as a as a former pot-smoking teenager driving pizzas to 2 in the morning. Where do you go at 3 in the morning when you're used to smoking drugs? I found an all-night prayer meeting, and Donald was there because Donald gave his life to prayer. His wife would be there at the nursing home, and he would come and pray faithfully. You never would have guessed a 60-year-old with a limp who kind of smelt like an old person would have discipled an 18-year-old pot-smoking kid who listened to all the crazy music at that time, Snoop Dogg, you know, all of that. But it didn't matter. The culture didn't matter. I could care less. I don't care about how much you know. I just want to know how much you care. And he would take me over to the rec center of the nursing home and teach me about Jesus. And I remember just one time being in his room and just saying, I'm afraid. I didn't figure it all out. I mean, of course, nobody figures it all out until they get to heaven. But I just didn't even know how to get my feet off the ground hardly. I'd only been saved a few months, and I was afraid. I told him I had all these fears. I'll never forget him going to the Bible as if it was a hidden treasure and digging out something precious. And him saying to me, 2 Timothy 1.7, The Lord has not given you the spirit of fear, Joe, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. It was as if the Apostle Paul was speaking to me. The Word of God is alive and active, and when we speak it, we don't just speak it as Paul did. We speak it as Jesus did. Because Jesus is in the word. He confirms his word. That's why he's faithful to his promises. And it says, don't give up meeting together because here's what comes next in verse 26. And it's not my threat, and it's not even necessarily a threat of the Bible, but it's a truism that if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Are you listening to me? The church is supposed to remind us that there's a kingdom to come. 
When you see the storms of Puerto Rico and you see all the people just, you know, just totally just broken and hurting and the earthquakes of Mexico and the devastation, my friends, that is a natural disaster that happens because our earth is in turmoil until God sets it right. But what do you think it will be like when God judges the nations? The terror. The terror, they will literally cry out to the rocks, cover me from his face before he judges me in his wrath. The Bible says this. So yes, we get together to love each other and to help each other, but we also make sure we are our brother's keeper. Where's your brother, Cain? What, am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are your brother's keeper. What have you done with him? Sin was knocking at your door. That's what he said. Sin's knocking at your door, Cain. It wants to have mastery over you. My one hour a week with you is to remind you that hell's hot and heaven's not. That you better get right or you're going to get left. And that God so loved the world that he sent his only son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And in that place, we have security. I'm not afraid of hell. But then we know that we know we are who God says we are. And we can change the world and help each other to finish the race. Look at your neighbor and say, finish the race. Hebrews 13, 7 goes on at the end of the book. That's towards the beginning but, or towards the middle. But here towards the end, in verse 7, remember they had a lot of traveling preachers. We would call this a circuit preacher, one that starts a church and has to go to the next one. It says, remember your leaders. Here's the letter, the epistle from the apostle. And what does it say? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their faith. Look back on John Wesley's life. Look back on Jonathan Edwards. Look back on the life of the Apostle Paul. You're not the first one to go through troubles. You're not the first one to face the death of a child or the death of a loved one, a spouse. You're not the first one to have in internal fears. Go back and consider their way of life. Imitate their faith. Today I'm imitating Peter. I'm not imitating Oprah Winfrey. I'm not imitating Donald Trump. I pray for them, but I'm imitating Paul. See, people today, they follow Trump, they follow Hillary, they follow Baez, they follow this. I follow Jesus through the lives of Peter, James, and John. Those are our heroes. And now verse 17, that four-letter word we just hate. Is there any way, God, we could just erase that four-letter word? It's right out there. What does it say in verse 17? starts with an O, one, two, three, four. Obey. Obey Joe. Obey Birdo. Obey. No, 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 no. Don't obey Joe because of Joe. Joe's not selling a life book here. It's not a motivational class. I think some of us should go to training, but I'm not your trainers, you know, physical trainers. I'm not. Obey your leader. Well, is Joe a leader? Then I trust the church, and I'll obey Joe. Is Birdo a leader? Well, then I'll trust him. And here's how I can tell you to stop obeying leaders. They teach false doctrine or they do anything against the character of God. They touch you in a naughty place or teach you naughty things. You stop obeying them. Amen? But do we have good leaders to obey? Jesus said he would build the church and the gates of hell would not prevail. Two or three gathered together should multiply. We don't die, we multiply. There should be those in this church that we can say they have been studying, they have been faithful, they've been good to their wives, good to their children. They're someone that I can submit to their authority because they keep watch over my life as someone who must give an account. 
You read Ezekiel chapter 33 and you'll know the fear of God that I have as being a pastor here. Every single one of you today I'm accountable to on the day of judgment and what I'll do with the money, the resources, and the time. I do not want to face you and have me be ashamed in front of you when God shows you what I've done with my time, my resources as your pastor. I guard my heart and my life. I walk before other elders in humility. I walk before what they call the presbytery, the other elders that are here. This man is an elder. He knows my life. He can keep me accountable in ways that you cannot. So pray for us as we pray for you. Be thankful for us as we are thankful for you. And guess what the Bible says? In 1 Timothy chapter 3, another letter of Paul, you say, Pastor, is that just an inner circle? Is that just where the pastor picks his best friends? No, look at what it says. How do you want to become an elder or an overseer? The terms are interchangeable. It says, here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. You want to join us? Come on then. Be a disciple. Be faithful. Go right through these things. I remember a man pulled me aside one day, a little bit older than me, but he was a part of the church. He doesn't go to our church anymore, but he still serves the Lord. We had won him to Jesus by God's grace. And he said, what does it take to be like you guys doing all this stuff here? I read him this scripture. And he said, that's what I want to do. And I said, let's go do it in Jesus' name. About two and a half, three years later, he became an elder in our church. That's up to you what you want to be. You could be a deacon in the Lord, serving the people. Helping out what we would say as a trusted servant leader. Or you can be a manager. We give them the positions as the apostles did to men and to women. Sometimes they're a little young. But as Timothy, he was young. And we say, don't let anybody look down upon your youthfulness. But serve God in an example. I planted my first church at 22. And I'm still here serving God. And my dad is 70. He hasn't retired. He's refired. So I served God. When I was a whippersnapper, now I serve God with gray hair. You can't make everybody happy, but let's serve God together, not be a burden to anyone. I don't want to be a burden to you. Some pastors complain all the time. They say a majority of pastors are depressed right now. They're not happy with their congregation. I feel sorry for those pastors. I love my church. I've had trouble in this church. I've had people forsake me, lie about me, but Jesus never has, and Jesus is the head of the church, so church is still good. I may make mistakes. I'm not infallible, but you know what? You can forgive me because Jesus forgave you. You say, I don't really like this church. Okay, God bless you. Don't let, the, don't let the door hit you with the good Lord split you, and we'll see you on when we get up to glory. Go find the one down the road. I'm not in competition with them anyway. God promised us 100,000. There's over 8 million. They can go get 7.9 million. I'm here to get 100,000. This is what God called us to do. Do you understand? There's a local church and a universal church, and let it not be a burden to you. Let it be a blessing. Some people say, I'm getting burned out of church. No, what's happening is you're getting bored. You've gotten bored with the things of God. You need to burn up for Jesus. Don't burn out, burn up. Stop being bored. Give your heart to Jesus. You say, I don't know how to do that. Meet me tomorrow at 2 o'clock at Wright College, and I'll show you how not to be bored serving God. Where I go witnessing and preaching. Join us Saturdays. Join one of these life groups. Join the teenagers. You won't be bored, I promise you. Here's these things in closing as the band comes. Four things I want you to know about the church. The church is the new humanity in the family of God. How many have been born again? Are you a new kind of human? Yes, you are on the inside. You're godly. You're not like Adam anymore of the Adamic race. You're of the new race, the the race of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that there once was just Jews and Greeks, or uh, yeah, Jews and non-Jews. 
And the, and the Jews got a little bit prideful and started looking down on all the, the non-Jewish people. But Jesus said, no, that was never my plan is to make Jewish people uh, feel like they were better. It was just to bring forth the Messiah through the Jewish line, to keep the commands and all of those things. But he says in verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. There's a new humanity coming to this earth. It's a new humanity, and it starts with a spiritual rebirth, and one day we will walk on this earth as the new creatures of God. Amen? So remember that. You're a part of a new humanity. Number two, what we see, and I have all the Scripture references there for you. The second thing that we see in closing is that the church is the wisdom of God for the nations. Who make the best doctors? Christian doctors. Who make the best lawyers? Christian lawyers. Do we believe in a theocracy? No, we don't. We believe in democracy. All other nations have believed in theocracies. Rome believed in it. The Aztecs believed in it. African tribes believed in it. All nations have tried to rule from God to man to the people. We don't do that because that man can mess up and then tell us we're all wrong and take away our religious freedom. What we believe is for freedom of speech. Let us have the freedom to worship our God. You can do the same, but we just ask you to be open. And that's it. If you don't want to listen, that's fine. There's your freedom. But we believe in the marketplace of ideas. Jesus Christ wins every time. That's why Muslims are afraid of Christ. They make it illegal to preach the gospel in their countries because they know we get a fair chance. We win every time. That's why communism in North Korea and China is afraid of the gospel because when we're given freedom of speech, we win every time. We don't have to make this nation like our church, but if Christians in this church live holy and godly, we will make this a Christian nation. The church and the state are supposed to be separate until Jesus Christ comes and rules and reigns. We don't believe in a literal Sharia law. A literal Sharia law is that God will rule through a people conquering with a sword. We don't believe that. Our kingdom is not of this earth. We're praying for it to come when Jesus comes. Now until then, we're sheep led unto slaughter. And that's why I just gave away, I haven't had it here, but I wear a bracelet for the persecuted church. Remember to pray for them. Because even though right now Christianity is spreading, like I said in Hyderabad, India with 180,000, we are still dying by the thousands around the world. But here's the point. Let the wisdom of God come through you where you're at, on your job. Don't force the religion. Just show them the wisdom. Daniel was in Babylon. He didn't have to force his religion. He just said, I have a better way. They will listen to us when they see our families are better, when they see that our marriages are better, when we, they see that we have money, but we have not the sorrows that come with it because God gives us the power to gain wealth without the sorrow. The Bible says it's his intent now that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. Is it through the government the manifold wisdom of God comes? Is it through the businesses that, the gov that it comes? No, it's through the church. The church is bringing forth the wisdom of God. The next thing that you'll see is that the church is the body of Christ. And so Christ gave him, uh, gave him, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, those are the elders and deacons serving in the church, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all, somebody say we all, thank you, reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, everybody say mature, thank you, obtaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. You better grow up before God throws up. The Bible says a backslidden church is what makes him puke. But a church on fire is this boast to the devil. Do you know that he brags about us to Satan? He says, Satan, you don't have anyone like mine. You think Job serves me because I make him healthy and wealthy? Take it all away and watch what he'll do. Now Satan, do that with one of yours. Take away your wealth, take away your health, and watch what happens. They'll come to me in a moment. You see, the devil is a loser. And God reminds him of that every time we live for Jesus. 
God reminds the devil he's a loser every time we, we, we live for Jesus. Somebody put that on Facebook. How many want to be like Jesus and not an infant anymore? We'll no longer be infants. We'll no longer just have to go to the religious enterprise and hear the things that they give us. It's cool to wear a diaper, but not when you're 30. It's okay to have a bottle, but not when you have a beard. Are you listening? It's time to grow up. Somebody say grow up. Amen. And the last thing is the, bo uh, the body of Christ. The church is also the bride of Christ. You've heard this at many weddings. But here's something that you need to take serious today before we go, please. It says this is a profound ministry. We'll get to this in Ephesians. But it says this is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the what? The church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must love and respect her husband. There is a mystery today. Can I tell you what it is? It's that God would join himself with humanity. It's that God would say to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not come against it. It's that you and I could be those things we read in Peter. We could be living stones. We could be a spiritual house. We could be a holy priesthood. And we could be the temple of God bringing forth those offerings of the Lord. And so the question I just want to ask you in closing, just as one more verbal, I mean, a one more visual uh, image here, is, is this all you want to give your life to? Because he believes in his community. This is his gathering. This is what he believes in. I'm not saying you can't do both. I'm just saying what comes first? What are you really believing today changes the earth? What makes you emotional? Because I see people like this all the time come to my church and say, well, I'm just not emotional. Didn't believe it when I saw you watch the Cubs game. You were shouting at the TV like it could hear you. Well, I'm not emotional, Pastor. Well, you cried when they won the World Series. Oh, Pastor, I got to go to bed early. I can't do that. You were out there at Wrigley Field till 3 in the morning. Come on, somebody. Well, Pastor, I don't really like to talk to people. I'm kind of shy. Seems like you talk every day about the game. See, it's not that we really have these hindrances. The problem is we don't love God more than the things of this world. It's not that you're shy. It's that you love God less than what you're already talking about. It's not that you're too busy. It's just that God is not that important. It's not that sin is really that pleasurable. It's just you don't think God is that great. Because sin is what you do when God is not great. When God doesn't satisfy, you find something else that does. As long as my wife satisfies me, I'll never be tempted by any other woman. The one moment my heart says, well, my wife is not that good, is when the door opens up to adultery. When I say my wife is all that my heart ever needs, there is not one woman that could ever turn my gaze from her. There is nothing this world can do in competition with Jesus. It's time to be the church. Can we pray as we get ready to go? Let's thank the Lord for the saving us and making us a part of the church. If you're not born again, would you ask him into your heart right now? Altar workers, would you come, please? If you're not born again, it's a very simple but life-changing process. You surrender and make God the Lord of your life. You confess him as the Lord, the one in charge, and then you repent of the commands that you've broken. You can do that right now. Those who already know Jesus, would you thank the Lord for being saved? Would you look back on your life? I know I got emotional, but would you look back on your life and let your heart be touched again on the goodness of our God? how he saved you, how he spoke to you, how he brought you from where you were to where you are now. Let's do this right now. Those who are not saved, let's get saved. Those who are already saved, let us set our hearts on Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for a new birth. We need you, God.
We need your kingdom. We need it, God. There's a lot of things in the Bible, God, that we have to study. We got to show ourselves approved, in other words, to understand it all. But, Lord, we can understand the basics. And the basics are you love us and that you don't want us to suffer and to be in pain. And that on the cross, you took our sins, you took our sicknesses, you took our sorrows. So, Lord, during this time, we call the shadow of the valley of death. Lord, comfort us. Let us trust you more and be secure in who you are. Sometimes you have doubts, but I want to encourage you to doubt your doubts. Every thought you have doesn't have to be your meditation. You can let thoughts pass through your mind. You don't have to think on every scary thing. You don't have to think on every worryful thing or every sinful thing. Learn to be renewed in your mind. And now let us pray for the church, the local church right now. Say, Lord, here I am. Send me. I will go. Let the Lord use you in the church right now. Where is he going to place you? As you start praying for a place to be, I'm going to start praying for all the things that we offer at this church. Those of you who already know where you're supposed to be, lift up the needs of those ministries. Lord, we lift up to you our family life group. We pray for families to be reached. Those who have come from broken homes, God, be made whole again. We pray for the marriage life group to touch and restore marriages, to put the spark back, God, because if you can fall in love, you can fall out of love. But those who build their house on love and your word, nothing can tear them apart. Let them know the difference between emotions, God, and the truth and let them give their lives self-sacrificially to each other. Lord, we lift up to you our young people that meet in three different life groups. We pray that the teenagers will come off of the streets, God. Those who come from families, God, where their hearts have been broken, let them be healed. Let them find their wholeness, God, in you. We pray, O oh Lord, for our children, the King's Kids programs, the Royal Rangers and the Impact, that, Lord, these children will know their identity, know who they are in you. Rise up to be great men and women of God, O oh Lord. We pray for our adult Bible studies, that adults will come together studying your word, iron sharpening iron, encouraging each other, loving each other, spurring each other on. Lord, we pray for our gang ministry that goes out to the reach the gangs on the west side, that you will continue to save gangbangers. We've already seen a chief of a gang saved. He tuned in live today, was here last week. We pray that you'll continue to save them, Father. We pray for the Saturday evangelism, that, Lord, you will use them to train up other soul winners into to reach this city, God, and the parks and the communities. We pray for the single mom's ministry, that the mothers who have been neglected or left alone and had things done to them, God, they'll be restored and healed and become strong and victorious. God, we don't have a lot, but the little we have, we will be faithful with. Use us. Use us, God. Use me for the sake of your body in which you are the head until you come. In Jesus' name, and everybody say, come on, can you give it up for Jesus one more time as you say amen? Would you slap your neighbor high five as you stand up and say, I love Christ church. Come on, tell somebody, I love Christ church. God bless you. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you at Life Groups. If you would like prayers from any of our elders or deacons, come on up or worship. Otherwise, have a great day. God bless you. Come on up for prayer for anything. We love to pray for you.
If you want to worship, just worship the Lord in our after party. God is going to do great things in us and through us. Those who have to go, go in the power of God. Come on, let's sing it out. Your kingdom, come. Your kingdom, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom, your will be done as it is in We're your sons and daughters. We're coming before our great King. Oh, Gloria Dios. Receiving your impartation. Make us strong for you, God. Make us strong in your kingdom. Not by might, but by your power, oh Lord. By your spirit. Mexico, be with Puerto Rico, be with Texas, be with Florida, be with Southeast Asia. Yes, Lord, show yourself strong in the places who are suffering. Let us know you are here, O God. Oh, yes, O God. God, in our politicians' lives, in the White House, God, upon our streets, in our families, oh, your power. Let your power be known. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as heaven. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in If you believe today God's got a special call on your life to do something for his kingdom, would you just meet me at the front here altar, uh, after party? Just if you feel something special in your heart, uh, an idea, a dream, a vision. Can I just pray with some world changers right now, some history makers, some roof breakers? If you're in the after party and you sense God has just given you some big dreams, some ideas to change the world, I want to pray for you. Oh, Lord, you see us here today, God, just like the first disciples. God, we're not wise according to the world. We're not great in power by their standards. But, oh, Lord, we have the cross. We have the cross that defeated death, hell, and the grave. And I pray you anoint every one of us to be like the first disciples who preached who prayed and saw the nations changed, oh God. May you rise us up, God, on eagles' wings.
to run and not grow weary, to walk and not grow faint, to see your blessing in the land of the living. Oh, a proverb. Listen, saints, the proverb says, a live dog, a living dog is better than a dead lion. It doesn't matter how great Paul was, he's dead now. It doesn't matter how great my heroes were. Oh, man, I got to sit in the presence of some awesome men of God. Look up Lester Summerall if you ever have a chance. Brought revival to the Philippines. Built the largest church there. There was a demon-possessed woman that was in the newspaper. He went to go pray for her. She got delivered. The newspaper wrote about him. He filled up stadiums. Read about the revival that God used him to do. I got to meet him. He prayed for me. Listen, but even a an alive dog is better than a dead lion. Lester Summerall's not here anymore. Paul's not here. Peter's not here. But the Bible says there are a cloud of witnesses around us. Wherefore, seeing we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us. And let us run our race fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Is there any disciples that will raise their hands up with me today and say, God, I want to run my race?